So good evening. Nikki was saying in that vi little video, if you notice that she's lost her voice, I woke up this morning and I had no voice at all. I literally, you know, words weren't coming out. I've got a bit more voice this evening, so I'm just going to start speaking and we'll just see how we get on. And uh, praise God for microphones. So we're continuing our series in Ephesians this evening, and I could begin this evening by asking you a question tonight. Tim was touching on it earlier at the end of worship, a question that goes something like this. Do you ever find yourself wondering whether God is really good? Whether God is good all the time to you, whether he's good through and through, if he's actually incapable of doing anything bad? Because, of course, if you're good through and through, you, you can't, you know, you're always good. I know we sing songs about the goodness of God. I love that song that we sung tonight. One of my faves. I don't know if you're allowed to have favorite Christian worship songs. And our band have released a song. Are you all aware of that? Yeah. What's it called? God is, God is good to me. Good knowledge. And many of us make confessions a lot of the time verbally, which is a good thing to do, that we believe that God is good. But the reason I'm not going to ask you the question, do you ever wonder is that I know the answer to that question. I know the answer to that question. And if you're honest with yourself, you'll tell me that the answer to that question is yes. You do sometimes find yourself wondering, is God really good all the time to me? Whether it's when you look at the news headlines on your, on your feed, on your social media feed or whatever, when you reflect back on what's happened to you in the past or to those people in your life that you love, whether you're kind of facing a scenario and you think God's inviting you to step out and actually, you know, the wobbles about stepping out are connected to the fact, well, can I trust him or am I somehow going to lose out if I do what God has said? You do wonder sometimes, whether it's subconsciously or consciously, whether God is good to you all the time. How do I know? Because you're human. You're human. It's not just a question that I wrestle with on my hardest, toughest days or in the middle of, you know, some bad nights. It's a question that humanity has wrestled with through, from the beginning of time. It's the question that undid, didn't it, the first humans in the Garden of Eden. You know, way back, chapter 3 of the Bible, it undid them. They were still perfect. They were walking with God. God was their mate. God had given them everything they'd ever needed and promised he was going to bless them sort of forevermore. He'd given them one command about not eating from one tree. He said, you can eat from every tree in the garden, but one tree I want you to avoid. What was it that weakened them enough to give in to the enemy's suggestion that actually maybe God was holding out on them and uh, tempted them to ignore what he'd said? What was it? Well, it was a lack of confidence, wasn't it, that God is truly good all the time that he can be trusted to be good every moment of every day to me. So they gave in to that niggle. The niggle of the enemy, which I think might went something like this. Well, if God is really good, why tell you that you can't eat that apple that's going to make you like God? Have you heard that voice? Why, if God is really good, why tell us that we should leave sex for marriage? If God is really good, why tell us to give away our money when we can't afford to? Why not let us do, if God is good, why not let us do what we want when we want? If God is really good, why is Strictly still on telly? No, I joke, sorry, some of you probably like it. Why have I not been healed if God is really good? Why did my loved one die? Why haven't I got that job? Why haven't I seen that breakthrough? Why is life so unfair? 
It's probably the most significant question that we as humans wrestle with. Is God really good? So today in week three of our series on Ephesians, we're tracking through Ephesians if you're new to us here or joining us online for the first time this evening. We are landing in the first half of chapter two, which is an epic chapter. It's got some really significant stuff in there. And we're going to be thinking about how what, God, um, how what Paul writes in this passage, how, what, how it can help us answer this question, what it's got to say to this question, how can I trust that God is really good? Now, given that Paul's been writing to these believers, we've been looking at it the last couple of weeks and telling them some fantastic stuff. God loves you. He's chosen you. He's redeemed you. He's adopted you. He's sealed you. You know, and he wants to show you more of his love and everything else, we might find it a bit strange that Paul dives into what he's going to dive into in chapter 2. These are believers that he's writing to that are going for it, they're full of love, they're full of faith, you know, their faith is on fire. And yet he clearly thinks, for reasons that we're going to come to in a moment, that they need to be reminded, not of what God has done in terms of, you know, their own personal relationship with him and adopting and all of, you know, the really good stuff. He wants to remind them where they've come from and remind them of some home truths. And he doesn't pull any punches in this passage. So I hope you've got your thinking heads on. There's some words in it that we might use or might be familiar with quite frequently, but we may not know, you know, what they all mean or whatever. We're going to dig into it a bit. But here they are, first 10 verses of chapter 2. And it's going to come up on the screen. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he made us alive when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us up from the, in, from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we're united with him. So God can point to us in all future ages as of examples of the incredible wealth of his riches and his, I can't read that, Kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Jesus Christ. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we've done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Has anybody here been whitewater rafting? Yeah? Do you like it? My, fir- my first whitewater rafting uh, trip, not that I've done loads of them, it would be fair to say didn't quite go um, according to plan. Uh, as a family of six, we filled a raft, and we, had, we were in Malaysia, we were in Borneo, and we had quite a skillful raftsman steering us down the rapids called Jeremy. The trip was going fine until it wasn't. We hit a rock. We bounced over some, you know, particularly white water. And suddenly, I flipped over backwards and fell out of the raft. It wasn't a good moment. I I can remember being under the swirling water and sort of just about beginning to realise where I was and what was happening and just about beginning to realise how serious it was when this hand grabbed the back of my neck and yanked me out of the water because I was underneath the water, yanked me out of the water and back into the boat. Jeremy 
had not only managed to keep the raft sort of in the area of water where I was, preventing it going downstream with the current, but he'd rescued me <coughs> with spectacular skill and much to the relief of my family. It was an amazing moment. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for Jeremy. <laughs> this passage that we're, we're looking at today is about rescue. This passage is about rescue. Paul wants to make the Ephesians aware and he wants us to be aware for anyone who opens his word that he has, yes, he's adopted us. Yes, he's chosen, he's chosen us, but he has rescued us. He has rescued you. The word sozo in the Greek is most commonly translated in the New Testament as delivering from danger or destruction. God is a rescuer. But what kind of deep water were we in? What kind of danger were we in? Well, according to this passage, grave danger, literally. Look at how Paul opens it. We were dead. You were dead. I was dead. Every single human on the planet is dead. Now, hold on a minute, Hills. How can that be? I've been for a run today, you know. I'm very much alive. What's he talking about? Well, he's describing our spiritual condition, isn't he? that we were spiritually dead. What does it mean to be spiritually dead? It means it's impossible to have a relationship with God. It's impossible to hear his voice. It's impossible to know his touch. It's impossible to feel his love. It's impossible to live the life that he made you for. You can't receive his power. You can't walk with him. You can't hear him. You can't receive his love and feel it if you're spiritually dead. It's a really big statement for Paul to be making. And what's he saying has made us dead? Look again at verse 1. He's saying it's our sin. We don't like that word. I don't think we talk about it very much. But let's just pause here for a moment. What is Paul talking about when he's talking about our sin? We need to know what we understand by this word. Do you know what, friends? Sin is not just the bad stuff that everyone else does. The way your housemate or the way your employee or the way the people on, you know, the train or whatever, you know, naff you off by doing the wrong kind of thing. It's not, the, it's not the, even the really big stuff that other people do, you know, like making racist comments or committing murder or stealing or oppressing other people. It's not just the bad things that other people do or even that I do. It's not just the outward stuff. What Paul's talking about here isn't something that's within us. Something that's in us like a disease. It's the thing that wires you to put yourself first in your life and to do what you want to do, what you think is best. It's the thing that wires you to do life on your terms, to consider that your importance, your, your um, opinions, your perspectives, your desires and ambitions, they're the things for you to go after. And yes, the outworking of that might look different in my life and your life. My sin might look way worse than your sin. But God is not here talking about a spectrum of, you know, who's this and who's that, who's good, who's quite good, who's bad, who's really bad. Paul is talking about an inner condition that we all have that stops us from loving God, from connecting with him and loving others. We're told to be aware, aren't we, of the stuff in our culture that is out to deceive us. There's a lie that I think is very prevalent at the moment. I hope you've discerned it. That's around in our culture. It's around a lot. Anybody like Simon Sinek? He's, I think he's a fantastic chap. I I've heard him speak. I love a lot of what he says. But 
but there's, there's, there's a quote that he, um, he, there's something that he said that I think epitomizes one of the lies that is very prevalent in our culture at the moment. And he said this, putting yourself first is not selfish, quite the opposite. You must put your happiness and health first before you can be of help to anyone else. Well, I seem to remember Jesus saying that I should deny myself, not put myself first. Now, I'm not suggesting that there isn't some truth. Self-care is really important. But Paul is God's mouthpiece, and he is not saying in this passage, hey, guys, you know, your real sin is that you're just so sacrificial. You're the most amazing people. You've spent so much energy on other people, loving others. You know, that's what you need to, you know, take, you know, that's what's got you into trouble. Look at verse 3. He's saying we're self-focused. All of us are wired to follow our own, what's he saying? Our own passionate desires and inclinations that come from this, this nature that we've got. Sin is in our DNA. Sin is in your DNA. Do you know what? I have four kids, for those of you that don't know me. I never needed to train any of them to steal some, to nick somebody else's toy when they wanted it. I didn't need to teach them how to do it. I had to teach them how not to do it or how to give it back. Who's ever had to teach you to lie, to make yourself look better? You know, to make your reputation, maybe, or to preserve your reputation in some way. Who's ever had to teach you to lose your rag when things weren't going kind of your way? No one ever had to teach me how to hold on to my money because I was giving so much of it away. Nobody had to teach me to be jealous when I saw other people being blessed in the way that I wanted to be. No one had to teach me how to criticize people who let me down. No one had to teach me how to be rude to members of my family when you know, I was having a bad day and they naffed me off. I've never had to be taught that stuff, and neither have you. Why not? Because sin is in our DNA. It's what Paul is saying here, because of this disease that we have internally, doing what's right for us, doing what I feel like doing, following what I want to do. And of course, he's saying, if you look at verse 2, he's saying, it's the way of the world. It's in the culture. Look at it. Just like the rest of the world, obeying or being inspired by the devil, there are principles and values at work in our culture, and we are all influenced by them. Let's make no mistake about that. And what's the result of all this cheery stuff that Paul's talking about? He says the result is spiritual death. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I think, and when I've been re- thinking about this this week, it's like, gosh, this feels really extreme. Spiritual death, you know. It's a bit of a big word, isn't it? But do you know what? I find this concept helpful. I don't know about you, but I've had all kinds of conversations over the years with different people and, you know... Um, a number of them have, have we've got stuck on, you know. Well, you might have seen my, you know, my stuff. I'm I'm a good person. I do good stuff. You know, I'm not like Hitler or whoever. You know, they might pull out of an argument. And actually, what Paul is saying here is so helpful. God hasn't got a spectrum, a measure, going. Well, you're quite good. You're not so good, and you're really bad. He's not interested in that. He's interested in: Are you dead, or are you alive? Are you spiritually dead? Or are you spiritually alive? Okay. Paul leads us to the consequence of this reality. Verse 3. I'm sure you noticed the word. It's not a word we talk about very often in church. Because of all of this, we're subject to God's anger. 
He wants these people who are adopted, redeemed, chosen, sealed to remember we were subject to God's anger. Again, another challenging word. Why does Paul want it in here? I don't know what you associate with um, anger when you see that word. I haven't had particularly positive experiences of being on the receiving end of other people's anger. I actually once was the victim of a road rage incident. Um, and when a, a guy did a U-turn in his car and came charging after me and swerved in front of me, made me stop the car and sort of gave me what for, you know, two inches from my face. It wasn't very nice. Um, I've been on the receiving end of all kinds of other people's anger. And do you know what? Most of the time, and I don't know if this is true for you, but essentially, and I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to say that I was completely innocent in that road rage, in a, you know, road rage incident. You know, I had made a bit of a mistake. And sometimes, you know, I have needed correcting. But in the majority of experiences um, I've had with other people's anger, it has basically been a release of their emotions coming in my direction. You know, a loss of the temper and everything that goes with that. And even if I've been in the wrong, where, as I said, I have been at some times, the reaction has been completely disproportionate to what I've actually done. We see it all around us, don't we? People losing control. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've got a problem with anger. And we lose control. And we kind of end up doing and saying things that actually, when we regain control, we probably regret. (coughs) Friends, let's just remember and acknowledge right now if we need to that God's anger is different to our anger because he's not like us God never loses control God is always loving he never loses his temper he never has a bad day he never gets to the point where somebody can just flick a switch and that's it he's lost the plot but he does get angry which is what Paul wants us to know because he's put it in here why Because anger is a dimension of God's love. And I hope if you really love people, whether it's family members or friends or whatever, you are open to feeling anger about certain things in their lives that might cause them pain or injustice or whatever. My mother died of cancer 11 years ago. I'm sure many of us have got relatives or friends that have been taken out by that disease. Do you know what, friends? I hate cancer. I hate cancer because of what cancer does to the people I love, because of the pain that it causes, because of the, the, the destruction to relationships that it causes. I hate cancer. Is that because I've got a short temper? No. It's because it's part of my love. It's an expression of my love. It damages and hurts and you know, ends the lives of people I love. God's anger is directed at this disease called sin, this disease that you have and this disease that I have. That's what Paul is saying here. Because this sin disease is the cause of all the pain in the world, isn't it? You know, the pain and the suffering in the world, it's caused by us, by humans. And would God be a good God if he just let it carry on forever and didn't do anything about it? Can you imagine the uproar if back in 2020 when COVID was running wild and taking people out, if the government just sat back and did nothing? We'd have gone bananas, wouldn't we? Because it wouldn't have been very caring. It wouldn't have been very kind to leave it to run its course. The Father has got to get rid of sin. I hope you believe that this evening. God has got to destroy sin if he is good. He's got to get rid of it because of what it does to the people he loves. Imagine 
a small child being diagnosed with a rare form of a, let's say, a blood disease, an infectious blood disease. You know, children are small and vulnerable, aren't they? Imagine that there's a, a chemotherapy that's strong enough to cure it, but it's so strong that in being put into the child's body, actually, it destroys the child because the child isn't strong enough to withstand it. Well, the child's in a pretty challenging posi position. Either the disease kills the child, or the chemotherapy that tries to heal the child kills the child. That's what life, or that's what sin is like. That's the position that Paul is saying we're in. There's no way of me getting sin out of, or of God getting sin out of Jay. There's no way of God getting sin out of Nay. There's no way of God getting this disease out of me. If he's going to get rid of the sin in me, he's going to get rid of me. And that's bad news for me. <laughs> We're all destined to face his anger. That's what this passage is saying. Right, enough of the bad news. Here's the good news. Look at the beginning of verse 4. <laughs> Love these two words. Somebody once said that the whole Bible can be summed up in these two words. What are they? Let's say them. But God... But God, it's such a beautiful phrase. I think they're the two most powerful, for me anyway, they're the two most powerful words in this passage. In Malaysia, I was under the water. I hadn't had time to work out what was happening to me. I think I was in a pretty serious way. There were rocks in the water. But Jeremy, Jeremy picked me out of the water and it changed everything. You and I, Paul is saying, were underwater. We were underwater, dead, under judgment, destined for this anger of God to come and deal with the sin, not me, but the sin in me, which means me, but God. Two unbelievably precious words. I know lots of you in here. I know lots of people in this church. And do you know what? I am privileged to know of so many but God stories. I was helpless, but God. I was going in the wrong direction, but God. I didn't know what to do, but God. I thought, you know, there was no way out, but God. I was clueless, but God. So many stories. We couldn't have a baby, but God. I thought I was going to be on my own all my life, but God. I didn't have any friends, but God. I almost lost my mind, but God. The doctor said it was impossible, but God. I was trapped in an addiction, but God. I've heard one or two of those stories this week, but God. But God showed up, God intervened, God made a way, God changed things. Paul says, but God. He showed up, he stepped in, and he made a way for us. Why? Because I did something to impress him? Because he needed you to fulfill his purposes in this world? He needed you on his team because he'd run out of staff? Because he somehow felt we deserved it. No. Look at verse 4. Why did he do it? What's it saying? Can you put the slide up, verse 4? Because he's rich in mercy. Because he so loved us. Because he's so kind, verse 7. He's dripping in grace. He did it because he's good, because he wants a family, because he wants you to live, because he wants to be in relationship with you, because he wants to lead you into the life that he planned for you and prepared for you right from the beginning of time. But 
God. But God, he reached down. Paul is saying, remember this, he pulled you out of the grave. He pulled you out of the deep water. He pulled you out of that place of spiritual death. And where's he put us? Not on the ground or back in the raft. <laughs> He's seated in the heavenly realms. Who's seated in the heavenly realms? Jesus. He sat us next to Jesus as his brothers and sisters. Because that's how he sees us. That's how he loves us. In the same way, it says in John's gospel, he loves us in the same way that he loves Jesus. How did he do that? What's Paul saying here? By executing his plan. By executing his plan with his son to deal with this disease in me and in you. And friends, it's really important. You know, why is all of this in here? Because Paul wants us to understand it. He wants us to get a bit, of, bit, of a, bit more of a grasp on what he's actually done for us. Because it makes a difference, as I'll touch on in just a moment. What did God do? He came up with this plan with his son. And on the cross, he transferred my disease onto Jesus. He then poured out the chemotherapy of his anger, which the Bible describes as being like a fire. He poured out the chemotherapy of his anger into the body of Jesus where it met my sin disease, your sin disease in him, and destroyed it. That's why we sing about the blood of Jesus. That's why we celebrate the blood of Jesus. I love what Tozer says, great theologian. The cross is the lightning rod of grace that short circuits God's wrath to Jesus. Don't know if we've got that quote up there. The cross is the lightning rod of grace. It's like God's anger that needed to destroy sin found him on the cross so that only the light of his love remains for believers. I heard the story the other day of a man who grew up in Minnesota, Minnesota which is full of wheat fields. And uh, sometimes these wheat fields catch fire and the fire can be blown around uh, a bit like a wildfire and spreads very significantly. And this guy was told by his grandfather when he went out walking in the wheat fields to take a box of matches with him. And his grandfather told him, if ever you see or you hear a fire raging and coming towards you, light a patch in the field where you are. Let, let um, the fire begin to burn the field, you know, a patch in the field and then stand in it. Because once a patch of wheat has been burnt, it cannot be burnt again. So the fire will not come and get you. That's what happens when we put our trust in Jesus. The fire of God's anger has destroyed the disease of my sin in his body forever. And we get made alive when we do that. When we step in, when we put up our hand, when we go, I need rescuing, Lord. And we put our trust in what he's done on the cross. Okay. Why have I spent so much time on this this evening, apart from the fact that this was the passage for today? Three short things. Paul wants us to be aware of this for what I believe, I mean, for sure many reasons, but I'm going to just spell out three briefly. Firstly, this helps us. The truth of what's in this passage and grasping it helps us to keep our passion alive for Jesus. Interestingly, there's a little passage in Revelation 2 where uh, Jesus is talking about this church in Ephesus and he's challenging them for losing their first love. They've got really busy with all their works. They've got really busy looking at what they should be doing. But he's challenging them. They've lost their passion for him. Interesting. 
I don't know about you, but as I walk through life, I can get really distracted by what God hasn't done. You know, the stuff that I'm praying for or the stuff that I want to see, and it's like, well, God, you haven't done that, and I can end up focusing on that. Or I can get really distracted by all the stuff I think I should be doing for him. You know, being a good mum, being a good wife, being a good employee, being a good neighbour, being a good whatever. I can get really focused about what I'm doing in life. And that stuff, it's not wrong, but if I'm focused on it and fixated on it and I lose sight of this, it deadens my passion for the Lord. I know that. And I think you do too. So I want to say, if your heart is feeling a little bit cool towards Jesus this evening, that's okay. Just confess it. That's the beauty of what he's done. We can own our stuff. Go, well, I need a bit of rescue here, Lord. My heart's a bit cool. I need you to help me. Thank you that you don't, you know, judge me. You're not angry with me. You love me. You've, you've dealt with the problem, but I need you to help me. Feel for you again. So if that's you, tell him about it. And if this doesn't feel what we've been talking about like a particularly big deal for you, ask for the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you can understand what he's done for you more significantly and more powerfully. Because as we do, the fire burns more brightly in our hearts. Secondly, Paul wants this here and wants us to get it because it helps us to relate to God more uh, properly. I think we can easily water the gospel down. I don't know about you, but I think we can easily water the gospel down to God loves you. God loves you, and that is true. He loves you, he's chosen you, he's adopted you into the family, you know, he's for you. It's all true, but the gospel is so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger. Paul wants us to remember that this is all about life and death, being alive or being dead. Because we can't be fully alive in this world if we're not spiritually alive. So Jesus hasn't just reached down from the waters and sort of pulled us up and rescued us and then sort of said, well, good luck, Hills. Off you go. I've rescued you now. I've got you out of the water. Off you go. Blessings. Hope you make a good job of the life that I've given you. He doesn't say that. Look at verse 10. You probably noticed this word as we were reading it. He says, you're a masterpiece. You're a masterpiece. I'm a masterpiece. Now, that's not you without the Holy Spirit. That's you with the Holy Spirit that God has put in you to make you alive. And he's now at work with the Holy Spirit in you, chipping away at you, chiseling away, doing some painting, polishing, you know, making this bit more beautiful, refining this bit. Chipping that bit away because it's distorting you. You're a masterpiece. You're his work of art. But you're not a finished masterpiece and neither am I. Let's remember that. He's still leading us into more of the life that he has got for us. It's all about life. He's still healing you. He's still loving you. He's still freeing you. He's still refining you. He's still releasing you. Jesus is working with you, in you, to lead you into more of the life that he has for you. Out of harmful habits, out of toxic mindsets, out of poisonous practices. So you can become who he originally made you to be. And the more we get this, friends, the more we get this, that this is primarily his work, not mine, 
his work, not yours, the better we get at receiving what he has for us. Receiving his help, not his judgment. Receiving his love and affection, not his rejection. Receiving his direction, not his, you know, judgment when I'm feeling guilty or whatever. I could go on. Last thing. I think the reason that Paul wants us to get this is where I started. Because it helps us with our question when we question. And Paul is human too. How do I know that God is truly good? The short answer is because of what he's already done. What he's already done. One of my favorite verses, Romans 8, 32. I don't know if we've got it on the screen. There we go. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us also. How will he not, along with him, along with what he's already done, how will he not graciously give us all things? Such a powerful verse. How do I know my husband, Tim, can run a mile? Because he ran a marathon. No brainer to run a mile. That's what Paul's saying here. God did the hardest thing he could ever do by giving his, his son to take my disease into his body, to pour his anger out onto that disease, destroying Jesus in the process, although he obviously raised him from the dead because he didn't have his own sin nature. He's done the hardest thing, so how is he not going to be good to me in every other moment of my life, in every situation and every circumstance going forward? Friends, when we look at the circumstances in our lives, when we look at the world around us, when we look at all the things that make us question, when we, when we examine our feelings on a bad day about, is God good? Paul wants us to remember this. He's proved it. He's proved it on the cross. He's proved it in rescuing us from death. And if he was good to us in that moment when it cost him everything, how will he not be good to us in every other moment for the rest of our lives?